Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Hey, what do you think? Can leading edge science merge with present day realities to reveal strategies for embracing stressful change in our lives? And can the surprising discovery of brain-like cells, yep, you heard me right, I said brain-like cells, located within the human heart, play a role in creating personal resilience? Well, we're going to explore this today, the powerful heart-brain connection is now recognized as a portal to the deepest levels of our intuition, heart-based intelligence, and a gateway to the subconscious mind. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest, New York Times best-selling author, and the 2015 Templeton Award nominee, Greg Braden, is internationally renowned as a pioneer in bridging science with ancient and indigenous knowledge to create real-world solutions for today. Following successful careers in the energy and defense industries, he became the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems in 1991. For three decades, Greg has explored high mountain villages, remote monasteries, and forgotten texts to merge their wisdom with the best science of our time. Based in New Mexico, Greg has shared his discoveries with United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, the U.S. military, mainstream universities, and audiences throughout the world. And it is such a great pleasure and honor to have him right here with us today. Welcome, Greg. Dr. Julie, I am thrilled to be on your program. I'm really excited about uh, about our topic today. I was listening to your introduction, and I thought, wow, this sounds like a really good program. And then I realized, oh, it's our program. <laughs> <laughs> it so is. And, we, you know, just, just introducing you with all those things, you're going to love my very first traditional question, because I have this mm. perennial question here. Because we like to set the topic into this meme and you're going to fit right in. So I'm going to ask you, Greg Braden, what does all things connected mean to you? All things connected. I think it's, uh, it is exactly what it says. The, the best science of our time in the 20th and now the 21st centuries is, is paralleling the wisdom of 5,000 years of indigenous traditions uh, with regard to us, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to one another, our relationship to the earth, our relationship to the past, our relationship to the future. And the key that runs through each of those relationships is that we are all connected. And we are connected in ways that we're only beginning to understand uh, in the modern world, uh, but nonetheless have been with us from, from the very beginning. And I think this is one of the keys. I'm a scientist. Uh, um, I'm an earth scientist. My degree is in geology. And I was trained as a scientist. Uh, and one of the things, one of the, the key tenets in science uh, that I learned early on was that if, if we can't see something and we can't measure it, um, that it probably doesn't exist. Of course, we know today nothing could be further from the truth. But, but this idea, we are so steeped in this idea of separation, both 
consciously in our lives and subconsciously uh, that it shows up in the way that we deal with with life, Dr. Julie. It shows up in our relationships. Uh, it shows up in our uh, our health. It shows up in our families and our communities. It shows up with the way we try to solve problems between nations. So the, the, the science is very, very clearly telling us now there is no doubt that we are deeply connected to our bodies and our world. There really isn't any controversy in the scientific community as to whether or not the connection exists. Quantum physics has dispelled that controversy. Now, the big controversy is to what degree are we connected and how much influence, if any, do we really have when it comes to our relationship with our bodies and, and with one another in, in the world? How much influence do we have? And, and I think that's where the, uh, the leading-edge science now is, is going. So it's a long answer to a short question, but uh, it's a very good question to lead with because it, it lays the foundation for everything that we'll, we'll talk about in this conversation today. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer because... It it's almost like the given of, okay, we're connected. So now how far can we really take this topic and, and play with it and understand it and, and make it real in our lives? And that's one of the things that you've done with this book, um, Resilience from the Heart, The Power to Thrive in Life's Extreme. You've taken this science and this ancient wisdom and really woven it together with very practical, real-life examples for the reader, and I, I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. That's good for me to hear. <laughs> do you, so let me ask, do you have a copy of the new book right now? Have you seen it? I, I have a copy, and I don't have it in front of me. Shame on well, me, but I well, have no, a copy. Well, yes. You, you, I don't. So, oh. <laughs> so you're, you're seeing the new book. They're supposed to be sending me a copy, and I haven't actually seen the, the, the new book yet, and you sounded as if you were we're speaking from uh, having seen seen the new well, book. Well, you know, so, we get review copies. We don't get the real thing, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the people that write the books don't get any of that. We just write the books, and, <laughs> and then and then we have to wait until they're they're printed and and the publisher sends them to us. So I should be getting mine this week. But you know what you've touched upon, uh, Doctor Julie. This is it's it's key. And before we go any further, I I just like to go about a half a step back. Uh, questions that come up to me uh, all the time with our live audiences all, all over the world and online and emails and things like that. People ask if this connection is real, why don't we know about it? You know, why, why is the, the popular thinking still based in separation? Why is that what is taught as fact in the classrooms and in the textbooks, even at the university level? And, and it's a good question, and, and it goes right to the heart of the way we have been conditioned to think about ourselves and our relationship to the world in, in modern society. Uh, it, I'm going to speak directly to our, our listeners. Listeners, if, if you were educated in the West in the last 150 years, you, along with me and, um, and our peers, we have been steeped in a tradition, in a story, a scientific story uh, based in separation. We have been taught that we are separate from our bodies, that we're separate from the earth, separate from one another, uh, and that nature is actually based upon this model of competition, scarcity, and conflict. Now, people ask me all the time, they say, okay, Greg, maybe the, the new science has overturned that, you know, so what? What difference does it make? Why is it important in our lives? And it's a really good question, because the, the scientific thinking that reflects all these things that I've just mentioned, it first came out in the late 1800s and early 1900s 
precisely when our society and Western, uh, modern Western civilization as we know it, when it was being formed. So these ideas were embraced, and they are at the foundation of, of the way we live our lives. They're at the foundation of the modern economic system, uh, the modern system of corporations, the way that we share resources in the world, uh, the way that we solve our problems, the way that we think in our relationships with our families when it comes to the healing of our bodies. So all of a sudden, these ideas of separation uh, and competition and conflict, uh, they become key in the way that we think about ourselves and the way we live our lives. Uh, and the reason that I'm beginning with this is because the best science now of the 21st century, and I'm talking about peer-reviewed science. So these are not hypotheses. It's not Greg's beliefs. It's, they're not uh, nebulous theories. This is peer-reviewed science. Is overturned the false assumptions that we've been steeped in. Peer-reviewed science now tells us that the origin of life is not random. The origin of life, uh, human life, is not random. Uh, that we're deeply connected to our bodies. We're deeply connected to the world beyond our bodies. Uh, that uh, that nature is based upon a model of cooperation in what biologists call mutual aid. And that changes everything, uh, Dr. Julie, about the way we have been led to think of ourselves, one another, and, and solve our problems. So the good news is the science has overturned the false assumptions. The flip side is that there is a, uh, a reluctance, and in many cases it's a flat-out resistance to share these discoveries in the mainstream. So mainstream media, documentaries, television programs, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks, they're still teaching the old science is fact. And now we have an entire generation of young people who are facing the problems of unsustainable ways of living in our world, the problems that, that one generation has left behind, and they're being asked to solve those problems through the same thinking that led to the problems to begin with. So this is why I wanted to share this information in the book, uh, because our story is changing from one of separation and competition and conflict to one of cooperation and connection and mutual aid. And that makes all the difference in the world. And it, it begins uh, with the way we think about our, our relationship to our bodies. And this is where the new discoveries come in that, that you mentioned about the, the specialized cells in the human heart. So I, I want to kind of lay that foundation so we can tie into it as we go through our conversation today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, um, putting it in that larger context is really important because this is more than just the mind-body connection that we're talking about. And when you when you talk about a civilization that's built in structures that come from that consciousness of separation you know, many of us are talking now that these structures are breaking down and, and it's kind of scary for people, but it's what's really fascinating and encouraging is it's, it's not just this mind body piece and it's not just my heart and my brain able to communicate, but, but the field and, and each other. So mm -hmm. I, I love putting it in this larger context to give us hope that all these problems that these young people are looking at if they can break through those old assumptions, those old beliefs, and really come back here, their solutions. Do you see a hopeful future when we start playing with this new science? I, I want to tell you, I have uh, I've never been more optimistic. Uh, I am an optimist by nature. I should probably preface <laughs> my answer with that. 
And I've never been more optimistic uh, about our nation, about all nations, about the world, about our future. Uh, And the reason is because now we know what does not work. We are the product of a way of thinking and a way of living. And I'm not going to judge it as right or wrong or good or bad. I'm going to say, for the most part, I think we've done the best that we could with what we have known. Uh, And we are learning so quickly in one generation what we used to think was true now has become obsolete. And that is rare. I mean, we see this happen over, you know, the span of two or three generations in the past. But for one generation to embrace a way of thinking and living and and master their lives and their world uh, to the degree that they have with that thinking, and then suddenly it's like the, the rug is pulled out from under everything that we thought was true, and we're being asked to embrace a new way of thinking and living before it is fully in place without getting lost in the fear of letting go of the old ways. That's where we are today. So I am an optimist, uh, and I'm also a realist, Dr. Julie, and, and I am under no illusion when I, I look at the, the degree of, of work uh, that it takes to shift a belief system. Uh, and to embrace what these new discoveries are telling us. Uh, and this is, I think, where the philosopher in me uh, comes out. There is a, uh, a very well-known poet from the, the 20th century, Khalil Gibran, uh, that talked about what work means. And, and the way he defined work, he said, work is our love made visible. And when I think about the amount of work that is required for us to embrace these new ideas and, and implement them in our lives, uh, the way I prefer to think about my optimism is that it is our love made visible. This is us loving ourselves enough and loving the world enough to embrace what we now know are the deepest truths of our existence and letting the old ways go that served us in the past but that are simply no longer sustainable. So we all are on a journey now uh, to, for our, our love made visible. Uh, and, and it shows up in many, many different ways in our lives. So, again, long answer to a short question, but I've never been more optimistic. So I think it's a good place to begin. That is. And, you know, the, the, when you say it in that way, there, there is this chasm of, of the old way of thinking and the new forms and structures and systems aren't really in place yet to support this new way of thinking, this this whole new new consciousness. I, re- I remember... Um, just this weekend, um, talking to someone in physical therapy school and, and, you know, they're so ingrained in the old system and then to even suggest something with the mind body connection, you know, it's like, Ooh, wait a minute. That's, that's not in our textbook. This doesn't, it doesn't, you know, fit. It's, it's not. And I've had, uh, I have friends, um, <laughs> We're probably not as good friends as we used to be because of these conversations, but I have friends in the academic world teaching in universities, university professors, Uh, and this conversation has come up uh, regarding the teaching of evolution, for example, human evolution. Um, I'm a geologist. Uh, Evolution is a fact. We see it in the fossil record for some forms of life, Uh, and the evidence begins to break down when it comes to human life. Uh, the evidence simply doesn't support the same story. And and there's new evidence that, that is, uh, is showing up and it's not being shared with our young people in, in the classroom. And, and I asked my friend, I said, you know, why not? I'm not saying throw all the old ideas out. Why not honor our young people by sharing the new discoveries alongside the existing beliefs? Uh, why, why, don't, why doesn't that happen? And he said, well, first of all, he said, you know what that would mean to my 
40-year career of teaching Darwin's idea of evolution. He said it would invalidate my, my career. And I said, no. I said, science is designed to be constantly updated. That's what keeps it current. When we find something new, then that must be incorporated in, into the scientific story. You would be helping your students to embrace the validity of so This is how, how powerful science is and why it is, is so alive. And, and then he said, okay, think how much money it would cost to change all the textbooks. And I said, well, that may have been true at one point in our past. I said, I think textbooks are going to digital books. And the digital books, you have to change at one place on one computer, and it's changed everywhere. And, you know, it, it comes down to habit, uh, ego, money, power, uh, and our desire, whether or not we choose to honor our young people with the, the best of what we now know to be true about ourselves and our relationship to the world. So, so we are. This is this pivotal time when it would be interesting at any time to have this conversation. But the context is that we're living in what the experts are now calling a time of extremes. Not necessarily bad things or even good things for that matter, but just big, big changes in the world that mean big changes in our lives and that pushes us to think differently about our world, and it brings us full circle because the best science of our time now parallels many of the indigenous and the most cherished traditions of our past when it comes to us and these relationships. So when we're pushed to find new answers, if we can embrace these deep truths, uh, then we have at our fingertips everything we need to to embrace this change in a really healthy way. And, and I think that's the key. Everything's changing. Our lives are changing uh, in ways that we've never seen, that we're not familiar with, uh, probably for most people faster than we've been prepared to accept. Uh, and if we can embrace 5,000 years of indigenous history and, and the best science of the 21st century, if we can weave those into a, a wisdom that's greater than the science all by itself, or than the spiritual traditions all by themselves. If we can weave all of this knowing together, then we give ourselves the edge, the evolutionary edge, so that we can go through these changes in a really, really healthy way. And, and I think that's what this work is all about. Yeah, that's so, your voice is so important in the conversation about weaving those traditions, weaving science and spirituality. And, and we are so much stronger when we weave it together. But the way that, that you have done this is really not throwing either of them out. And I, I think that there is this, if we go back into the old consciousness of separation, if my science isn't right, then I'm wrong. And what we're doing is building on it and weaving the best and continuing to understand. So I really appreciate how you bring spirituality into the conversation. And then it's just, it's just as, as real and black and white as scientific fact in a, in a way, you know what I mean? I, I think it is, you know, and, and I've always felt that the better we know ourselves and the better we understand our relationship to the world, the better equipped we are to deal with whatever life brings to our doorstep. You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I see I'm a student of cycles and I'm a student of trends uh, and I can look to the past and the laws of, of nature and, and the rhythms of nature and I can see the trends of, of where our lives and our world are heading. I don't know specifically what's going to happen and, and I don't think that we need to. If, if we embrace the gifts and the abilities uh, that have been with us 
all along since the time we were born. If we can embrace those, then we have the resilience. We don't have to bounce back from the difficult times of extremes. We have the resilience to think and live in a way that takes into account the, the realities of our lives and our world. It's, it's a very healthy way of dealing with change. So I'm contrasting two very different things here. Traditionally, we talk about resilience. Uh, a textbook definition in the past was where we have the ability to spring back or bounce back to a normal functioning after something has happened that, that we weren't prepared for. Uh, the Stockholm Resilience Institute is exploring uh, another kind of resilience where we think and we live every day in a way that takes into account the realities of, of our world. So we don't have to spring back. We don't have to bounce back because our thinking has already led us to a place where we can embrace that change. And, and that's a very, very different kind of, of resilience. That's what we're talking about in, in the new book. You know what, Greg, I, um, years ago, I'm a psychologist by trade as well. And I years ago did some resilience training with children in schools and the high risk kids. And it was when no child left behind came out and Alaska was doing some amazing work and what they did and, and the training revolved around, which is fascinating. Now that we're talking about societies and cultures and individuals and resilience, I'd love to hear what you think about this. What, what they, what the research showed coming out of Alaska with a lot of high risk kids that literally had adverse childhood experiences was that the more connected they are, the higher their resilience was. And so even you go to school and the, the cook or the person in the lunch line says hi and calls you by name or the janitor speaks to you, the more connections that a child has, the more resilient they became later in life, which is fascinating because now we're talking and, and you're talking about resilience again, and we're, we're talking about connection. I can speak, uh, I can speak to that firsthand because I am the product of a, a very dysfunctional uh, uh, alcoholic family, abuse in the family. Uh, and as a result of that, well, my, my father left the family when I was 10. Uh, and we, my mother was left to raise two, two boys on her, and I have a younger brother. Um, and we immediately found ourselves in a low-income situation, government-subsidized housing, uh, and all of the, the social uh, problems that come with that. And then we moved uh, very frequently. And every time we moved, I went to a different school, and every time I went to a different school, I had to make new friends. And I think that, for me, was part of the saving grace. It was the, the number of friends, the different cultures and the different societies and the different religions. Every, every time that I changed schools, uh, my friends would invite me to, uh, to share their spiritual or their religious services with them, and, and I would. So I became just as comfortable in a mosque or a synagogue as I was in a Catholic church or in a Native American kiva. Uh, and I also came to understand that while every one of those had facets of understandings that I felt were part of the whole, I found none of them that contained the whole in and of itself. They were all bits and pieces of, of something greater. But it was that connection, uh, the many and varied connections, because I had to learn about so many different cultures and so many different ways of being uh, and the connections that come with that, I think 
were among the things uh, that helped me navigate through a very difficult time in my life. I had to ask myself uh, the question as to whether or not I believed all of the negative things that I had heard that had been directed to me during the time that my father was in, in the home, uh, in, in the situation that we were in. And there, I think we all reach this to some degree in our lives in you know one way or another. Do we believe what we've been told in our families, and, and do we believe uh, the, the way we've been given to see the world through the eyes of our caretakers and our families, or does the world show us something that doesn't mesh with what we've been told? And then, then we have to make a decision in our lives, what are we going to embrace? Do we embrace what we've been conditioned to believe, or do we embrace what the world is, is showing us as the reality? And we all learn differently. Everyone does that in their own ways. But uh, I can attest to the, the, the power of, of connection, and, and we're talking about both human connection as well as connection with nature. Uh, and yeah. nature was a very, every time we would move, uh, the saving grace of these places was they would always be close to some kind of a public park or, mm-hmm. or something like that where I could find that, that nature to sustain me. Oh, yes, we're talking about connection. We're going to talk about the heart. I want to really dig into resilience and, and really look at the heart here. We're going to take a quick break. We're visiting with Greg Braden. We'll be right back after this. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. It's always nice to come home, but these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making home affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. I'm home. And I love it. I'm home. I'm home. Find out now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha-ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? (laughs) What? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What'd he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt! Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org 
Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. You're on the Dr. Julie Show, and I'm here with Greg Braden. I want to tell you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing today, check out the archives on www.thedrjulieshow.com and visit our website. You can see all the upcoming guests as well. And visit Greg's website. You can check out his new book there and lots more. That's gregbraden.com. And Greg has two Gs, G-R-E-G-G, braden.com. And stay connected all week on the Dr. Julie's um, Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie. So we'd love to have you come in and chime in on the conversation. So, Greg, right before the break, we were talking about nature. And I know that's another really important element in this conversation and and as as you were talking i was thinking about how all of the templates for our healing for our wholeness are are all right there we're like holes within the hole and you know yeah the systems aren't all here for us to step into as as the other systems are breaking down but it sure is easier to shift in the consciousness of of connectedness, this this whole within a whole consciousness that really helps us in so many ways. Oh, absolutely, and and you know, I, I know some of these ideas they seem a little abstract for some people, and and sometimes a story is the best way to really ground uh, uh, an idea. Do you mind if I share a quick story about oh, precisely the things we're talking about here? Um, because I wasn't sure where you wanted to go with this, and uh, but I think this this really helps. Uh, my wife and I live in a, a rural area in uh, in the high deserts in northern New Mexico, and New Mexico has been uh, especially hard hit uh, in two ways by the changes that we're talking about. Um, it is one of the least populated states in uh, in the nation, and uh, one of the lowest. Uh, I think it's second or third lowest per capita income in the nation. So poverty has been a big problem in, in New Mexico as well. And a lot of people here, they're, uh, they live agricultural lifestyles, uh, had farms in their families, you know, for uh, two or 300 years. And they've been especially hard hit by the downturn in the economy, uh, as well as climate change. And they're selling farms, selling ranches, things like that. It's just been a really, really difficult time. So a, a good friend of, of mine, his name is Ken, uh, has been a builder of ecologically sustainable green homes here in the desert southwest for, uh, for over 30 years. Uh, does a beautiful job and hires, uh, I think, 35 or so people in, in his crew uh, and had just taken on the largest project uh, of his career 
when the economic downturn happened in 2008, when the, uh, the, the economic crisis of 2008, not only the economy tanked, but the housing market tanked, and he lost everything. Um, he lost the ability to sustain his, his own life. Uh, he couldn't take care of his crew. And at first, Ken began to do what many of us would do in the old way of thinking, based in separation, uh, conflict, competition. He began asking, where can I recreate the very same business that I've just lost? Where can I recreate that? How can I recreate those conditions again? Because that, that's our thinking. Uh, and it didn't work. And he was really struggling. And when Ken tells the story, he does a beautiful job, uh, much better than I, I can probably honor here. What he says is it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he bolted awake out of a deep sleep. And as he sat up in bed, he was actually asking himself a question under his breath. And it wasn't, how can I recreate my job or, you know, how, how am I going to get through this? The question he was asking, he said, what do people need? What do people need? And that is a paradigm-shifting question when we are in times of, of, uh, like Ken was, was having, when we've lost what's familiar to us. To turn that question around and say, what do people need? And the next morning, he woke up and he began to design and prototype and build an innovative system of raised bed, self-heating, self-watering, covered greenhouses that would allow people to grow uh, non-GMO, organic, sustainable food 12 months out of the year, no matter what the, the temperatures were. And he built them as small as 12 inches square that could go on a high-rise in New York where people typically don't have land uh, to as large as 8 feet long by 4 feet wide in, in, in two or three of these in, in a series where people have more land here in, <clears throat> in the West. And what happened is that he became so successful uh, with his new endeavor, uh, more successful, much more than he ever was building homes. He has a crew larger uh, that he's able to sustain now. He's healthier, he's happier, he loves what he does. He gets up in the morning, he loves connecting with people, helping them to help themselves in a healthy way. And all he did was change the question. So this comes back to this, this story, the scientific story of separation. If we lived in that world, it would make sense to ask the old question that many of us have asked when we enter into a relationship, a job, a career, healthcare decision, we say, what can I get from this decision? What's in this for me? How do I benefit from this? So in a world of separation and competition, that makes sense. But we don't live in that world. And science is telling us we live in the world of connection and cooperation, which means that question has to change. And Ken is a beautiful example of this. He went from what can I get from the world that exists to what can I offer? How can I contribute? What can I share? What can I give to the world that's emerging? So he didn't say, how am I going to benefit? He said, what does my community need? And in answering that question, he did benefit, but that wasn't the primary reason for what he was doing. And that is a beautiful example of a shift in thinking right now that we're going through as individuals and society, uh, as, as a world, because we are so connected as a world. The old ways of thinking and solving the problems aren't, work, aren't working any longer. When we can help one another, we benefit as well.
Ken is now thriving uh, to a degree greater than he ever did in his housing business during the worst economic downturn in 70 years in one of the lowest per capita income states in the nation. He's healthier, he's happier, and all he did was change the question. And if our listeners haven't done so, I'm going to invite our listeners to do this. Many people I know are on the fence about jobs or thinking they may lose them or, or they're not going to lose them, but they're not happy with what they're doing any longer. And they're saying, where do I go next? This is the paradigm shift. And I, and I ask myself this question many times every day. What can I give? How can I contribute? What can I share? What can I offer in this situation? And when we do that, we're reflecting the deepest truth of the most fundamental law of nature, and that is the law of cooperation and what biologists call mutual aid. So I think it's, it's a beautiful example of how these sometimes abstract ideas can actually play out in our everyday lives. And I wanted to share that just to anchor that idea before we move on into heart-based resilience. Mm. I really appreciate you adding the words mutual aid into the conversation. You know, uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard and, and other evolutionary thinkers really talk about, you know, the greater complex systems and bringing people together. But when you introduce those two words, just just even the resonance of it feels nice. But it's about our cooperation. It's really not about all of us networking more, cooperating more. It really is finding our fullest expression within the whole and then everyone is like activated in this mutual aid new way yeah, of being i love absolutely. that i'm i you know I've, I've seen your website many times and i see all all the friends and people i've shared the stage with and toured with over the years bruce lipton barbara marks hubbard larry dossie uh you know all have similar uh, message we all learn differently and it comes about in different ways but it's all about the connection and all about the, the shift. We're living, our story is changing. And our story is changing from one of separation and competition and conflict to one of connection, cooperation, and mutual aid. And that idea is showing up in our everyday lives. And for anybody that has a doubt that we're in that shift, I mean, even the skeptics that say, you know, what, what's the big deal about the change? The economic system of, of the planet in the last month has shaken some people's beliefs right to the core. They're saying, you know, what's going on? Why did this happen all of a sudden? It didn't happen all of a sudden. It's been happening. They may not have been aware of it. But the economic system is one of these places. Uh, it's based in the false assumptions of competition and conflict that are unsustainable. And as those unsustainable ways break down, uh, sometimes they do so pretty quickly in ways that we're not expecting. But it's an opportunity for us to, uh, whatever we replace those ideas with, to base those in what we now know are the deepest truths of our existence. So w when it mm -hmm. comes to the way we work together, that's cooperation and mutual aid rather than the, the violent competition and the conflict of the past. You know, I, I spoke at a gathering uh, two weeks ago, and there was a bunch of bankers and some attorneys and a, a whole wide range of people. And I think you'll appreciate this because this is a lead into our brain-like cells that we found in the heart and this heart intelligence, which is, which is really, I, I really want to hear you talk about the science. But I challenged them. I I challenged them to 
take their heart to work. And we talked about heart intelligence. We talked about this energetic field and, and what's really going on with the research. So it was really quite fun to just say, take your heart to work. And these bankers and, and, and others were just looking at me like, huh? So let's, let's talk about this brain resilience and these brain-like cells, resilience from the heart. What are we learning and how can this help us get through these stressful times? Well, this is something I love to talk about, and, and I wish we even had, uh, had more time because there's so much we can say about it. But I, I think a good place to begin is, uh, for most of us, we were taught uh, in our formal education the master organ of the body is the brain. Uh, and it's easy to think that way because of, of the relationship the brain has with our, our bodies. It certainly creates the chemicals and, and so many of the, uh, the sensory functions. Are, uh, are based in the brain, what we're now beginning to understand, however, is that the brain receives the instructions. Uh, it is informed by something that's happening in the human heart. The heart and the brain work together. So while the brain may release the stress chemistry or the healing chemistry or the powerful immune response or anti-aging hormones or whatever these things are that we're talking about, it doesn't just do it on its own. It does it as a result of signals that it's receiving from the heart. And interestingly, those signals are created by the way we feel about ourselves and our relationship to the world, our emotions. So all of a sudden, we are finding that we have the ability to regulate the conversation between our heart and our brain, and in that way, to influence how we experience our lives in the world so that we're not victims of things that we we have no control over, um, but we actually have the ability to influence these things in a powerful way. One of the places where this research uh, has really taken science, scientists by surprise, uh, is the discovery that you've, you've now mentioned, an intriguing uh, sounding discovery. In 1991, uh, scientists in Montreal discovered the existence of 40,000, approximately 40,000 uh, specialized cells in the heart that are called sensory neurites. So it's, it's kind of a technical sounding term for, for brain-like cells, but they were located uh, as a neural network in the heart. And this was a surprise. We've been transplanting hearts, you know, since the 1960s. Scientists felt like, you know, they, they pretty much know everything there is to know about the heart. So to make a discovery of this magnitude so late in the game uh, surprised a lot of people. But the more we're beginning to understand about these neurites, uh, the, the more mysterious the role of the heart now is becoming. And what's very obvious, Dr. Julius, our heart does much more than simply pump blood. You can build a machine to do that. But what the scientists now have found is that these neurites, they have the ability to think independently of the brain and our head. They, they have their own thoughts. They have their own memories. We can remember things in the heart independently of the cranial brain. Uh, we can learn uh, in our hearts uh, independently of the cranial brain. So there's a, an entire conversation we can have about the, the power of the heart uh, independent of the cranial brain, and, and I'm happy to have that. Where the book is really going with this is there's another path uh, that I think is even more profound, and that is now we know the heart and the brain, obviously two separate organs, but they are connected through a common neural network, a neural pathway. And when we consciously activate and, and develop 
this connection between the heart and the brain. Now what we're doing, it's not all about the heart. It's not all about the brain. It's about the two of them combined into a single potent neural network that allows us to, to experience truly extraordinary things in our lives, things that we've thought were, were mystical or maybe just happened uh, spontaneously at certain times in our lives. Deep states, this is what we're talking about, deep states of intuition that we now can trigger consciously at will when we choose. We've all had, you know, flashes of insight or, or times, you know, we pick up the phone to call somebody and they're already on the phone and, and you know, we don't know how that happens exactly, and, but there's obviously a connection going on there. Those are spontaneous. We're talking now about the ability to consciously trigger these very deep states of, uh, of intuition uh, that allow us what is called heart wisdom and heart intelligence, where we can answer questions about life, uh, about situations, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's the best path. And what the scientists have found is our heart answers these questions really fast, much faster than the brain. And when we think about it, it makes sense. The, the reason is because the brain, when we ask a question, we try to solve it through logic. We go through a loop. All of the emotions, of the judgments, of the fears, of the bias, and the experiences that we've had in the past. And those slow the decision-making process. The heart doesn't go through any of that. The heart simply answers immediately, and, and we know this is, is heart-based intuition. So this is one of the the uh, abilities uh, of connecting the, that comes from connecting the heart and the brain. Uh, another one is direct access to the subconscious mind uh, at will when we choose. I think most of our listeners are probably aware <clears throat> that our childhood experiences from the ages of the time we're born until we're uh, six or seven years old, our brain is a sponge soaking up the habits and the behavior patterns of our primary caretakers in our environment. And if we were fortunate enough to be in a good environment, there's no problem. A lot of us uh, were not. And so we learn unhealthy habits that continue into our adult lives and they show up in our most intimate relationships, uh, in business, in love, in finance. And if you want to change those, you've got to speak to the subconscious in the language that it recognizes. And this heart-brain connection is one of the ways that, that opens that, that pathway, and we talk about this in the book. But what we've also found is that this heart-brain connection, even if you're not into intuition, precognition, uh, subconscious, all of those things, it triggers a cascade of chemistry in our bodies that is really, really healthy. It enhances our immune system, triggers the anti-aging hormones in our bodies. Uh, all of these simply from connecting our heart and our brain, this is what the science is showing us, and it parallels, this is so fascinating to me, it parallels some of our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions. So the science now is learning the mechanism of how things work, but science can't tell us how to apply that in our lives. 5,000 years of spiritual traditions, they didn't know the science, but they knew how to apply these connections in, in their families and in their, in their communities. So we marry these together now. And what I feel is, is the most potent marriage, the, the most potent blend of science and spirituality to give ourselves the edge that I believe no generation in the past has, has ever had. And this is where context is so important. It's that edge that we now need because we're living a time of extremes 
where we've got to think and live differently, more so now than we ever have in the past. So it comes full circle. The, the conditions of the world are pushing us to know our own capabilities so that we can embrace the change of the world in, in a healthy way. So uh, I can't think of a, of, of a more perfect story. Uh, and it's our story. And it's a story that's unfolding in all of our lives right now. We're creating it as as we live it, which is really beautiful. So let's let's go just a few steps deeper into this because our listeners heard you speak of a lot of the indigenous traditions and and religious traditions over the years have figured out this heart and mind connection, and and so is. Science is starting to talk about it with meditation, Heart Math Institute, other things. But what does that really mean? What does it look like? Help our listeners understand, how do we make a brain-heart connection? Well, the, the truth is the connection always exists within us to some degree. Uh, and we can kind of think of it as autopilot. I, I think we come into the world and we've got just enough of the connection to get by in life. Uh, in a way that works, you know, it works for most people. It's when we choose to go beyond the ordinary into the extraordinary. That's when our ability to consciously build this connection really begins to, to make a lot of sense. <clears throat> Neural networks uh, are fascinating. And I, I don't know if you had my dear friend, colleague, uh, I've toured with him many, many times, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Have you had him on your program by any chance? Not yet. Okay, well, I'm going to to recommend uh, that, that you do, and I'll, I'll let him know about your program as well if, if he doesn't know it already. But he deals with uh, what's called neuroplasticity and is the ability of our, of our brain, uh, and now we know our heart and our brain, to actually grow neural networks, to grow cells, neurons, uh, that match the conditions that we're creating. Uh, in our heart and in our mind. So this is where meditation and this is where prayer, certain forms of meditation, certain forms of prayer, uh, a lot of certain forms of yoga, certain forms of qigong, certain forms of, uh, of healing techniques, of martial arts. All of these are paths from our past uh, that have in one way or another been used to, to grow and develop these and strengthen these neural networks. Uh, between the heart and the brain. So everyone learns differently, and some people will be more drawn to a meditation than they will to martial art, for example. When the truth is, all of these are, uh, are helping us to build these very powerful networks in, in our bodies. The key here is that a, a neuron, a, a, the neuron is the, the nerve cell that we're talking about. And I think our listeners are probably familiar with the, the, what the neuron looks like, seen pictures in biology and textbooks and things like that. Uh, and the neurites are the little appendages that grow from the neuron itself. And the thing about neurons is they're really social. They want to connect with other neurons uh, to build these bridges, to build these networks. So when we're learning a foreign language, for example, here's an example. You're learning a foreign language, and we first go through the new words. They sound funny, and, and making connecting the words into a sentence, we have to really put some effort into that. And, and people that have done this, our listeners they'll relate to this. All of a sudden, we wake up one morning, and it's like right there. We're thinking in that language. We're thinking in French, or we're thinking in Spanish, and, and the, the, the words come to us very easily, and you say, well, what happened? What changed? And what happened is it takes about 72 hours of continuous work 
for these neurons to build and connect. And we've got some amazing new film, video from Russia and from Japanese scientists. We can actually see this happening uh, in the body. It's not something happening on a slide under a microscope. This is happening in the heart and in the brain. We can see the 72-hour process of, uh, of these neurons actually growing and reaching out to find similar neurons, other neurons, so they can create the pathway. And that pathway is what gives us our memory. That pathway is what gives us our, our ability to connect. Uh, or another example, I'm a musician as well, so maybe musicians can relate to this. When, when you're at the piano or guitar, you're trying to learn a piece that someone else has created, and it, it's very foreign and strange. Uh, you know, in the beginning, if a guitarist, you're trying to play like Carlos Santana you know, or, or something like that, and all of a sudden, you wake up one morning and you're thinking like Carlos Santana, and your fingers are finding all the notes, and you're flying over that fingerboard, and you say, what happened? This is, this is the key. Uh, and this is why the repetition and the practice actually builds these new pathways uh, that, that allow us to have these abilities. It's like a muscle. But if we have never known we had the ability for intentional uh, intuition, or we never knew we had the ability to, to consciously go into the subconscious uh, at will, or you know to do some of these other things, then we've never exercised those muscles. So the book is talking about uh, strategies and techniques and actual practices uh, based on proven science as well as indigenous traditions. How do we do these things in our lives uh, and, and how do we know that they really work? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's so much that we could go into this with uh, Dr. Julie. It just depends on, on where we'd like to go with this. But, but the key here is that you, we don't have to be a special person to have extraordinary abilities. Uh, we were born with the, the blueprint for these abilities, and they're simply waiting for us to trigger them into existence. And that is where I think the blend of the science and the spirituality really comes into play. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we just, I, I'm like my jaws on the floor, just taking all this in, and I just really want to pause and breathe it in. It's so much. But we well, just have a couple minutes in the show, and when I was listening to you talk about literally creating the neural pathways we're, we're creating it as we're doing it and again it's another template for us in the world right now to just begin to begin to serve the emergence of what's happening serve the evolution just hop in and the new pathways will be built as we're as we're being it it they will and in addition to that to come full circle with where we began this program what the science now is showing as well is that our resilience to change in our lives is directly linked to what's happening in our heart, specifically what is called heart rate variability, HRV is the acronym. It is the, the, the distance on, on the graph that we see of an EKG between the peak of one heartbeat and the next. And when we're very young in life, uh, that distance varies with almost every, every heartbeat. So we have tremendous heart rate variability, young in life, and that's because we need to adapt to change quickly. As we get older, we become set in our ways, rigid in our thinking, and it's actually reflected in our heartbeat, uh, that our HRV, the heart rate variability, becomes less and less, and change becomes hard for us. Connecting the heart and the brain restores heart rate variability and can happen literally in a heartbeat. It happens very, very quickly. 
all we have to do is be aware of what's possible and then embrace these traditions in our lives. So then the book talks about those things as well. So connecting the heart and the brain accomplishes all of these things simply through that connection and probably brings us closer to our truest nature and to really answering the question, who am I? When we have this experience, we have the fullest expression of ourselves and we begin to answer that question in new Mm. and powerful ways. Ah, beautiful. Greg, thank you so much for being with us and our listeners today. This has been fantastic. No, Dr. Julie, thank you for being such a gracious host, asking really, really good questions and allowing me to, I, I realize I, I did most of the talking and, <laughs> no, and I appreciate the opportunity brilliant. to share these things. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Maybe you'll come back again and we'll, we'll do this again. In a heartbeat. I'd love to. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you listeners. We'll see you right back here next week.